Welcome to another episode of Andy Here's the 80s, the show where we go through the music of the 1980s and figure out what exactly is worth putting into the record collection. I'm your host, Andy, joined as always by my co-host, Aaron Keck. Hello. Uh, this week we're talking about the dawn of alternative rock, uh, sort of an ambiguous term that would definitely kind of take hold of a lot of the 90s music, uh, but this is kind of the genesis of that uh, of that movement. I was going to say this is the dawn of alternative rock as opposed to post-punk, new wave, yeah, all these or other any of the other 16 the... different labels that we've been affixing. So the bands that we're listening to, some of them not only apply to, but have often been applied to other labels. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to listen to Husker Du here, and that is often referred to as a just straight-up punk band or hardcore. Mm-hmm. How how much did these bands embrace the labels that were applied to them? I think uh, most of them, at least from what you... Like, if you ask them and some of the interviews did that I read, you know, they would just say... Uh, most of them would just say, we're just making... We're just, we're just a rock making band. music, you know? right? Yeah, yeah. Like we're, yeah. We don't want to... Nobody... None of these bands really, even of the ones we've heard so far, have wanted to necessarily pitch themselves as a type of music. They're right, just, right. They're just a band, and if and the the stores can figure out where to put the, the records, <laughs> you know? But... Uh, these these guys, uh, all of these bands here are kind of uh, the influences of what would kind of become the you know, quote unquote alternative rock of yeah. uh, of beyond this time. These are the proto nineties bands. Yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah, and I think they. I think what we're gonna hear is music that sounds like it's in the process of becoming what mm-hmm. would eventually be the nineties. Yeah, right? yeah. And and in the process, it kind of uh, a lot of these sound uh you know not necessarily 30 years old right? mm-hmm. i mean a lot of the music we've listened to so far doesn't always sound dated but these ones especially i think have a kind of uh quality that wouldn't sound out of place if these were released to this year even yeah some uh, of them at least some of them at least yeah, yeah not all but it's like these do not sound 30 years old they sound about 25 years yeah, old. <laughs> yeah and and uh some of the production i think is better than others on some of these yeah, too yeah. but um the alternative kind of gained steam uh, mostly through uh, college radio around this time. This is kind of one of the only places you could find it. And occasionally other uh, rock stations would might maybe have like a block on the weekends that they would call their mm-hmm. alternative block where they'd maybe play some of these. Uh, but that was uh, just like the hardcore punk we heard last week. These are kind of, they kind of gained steam through word of mouth primarily. Uh, a lot of still kind of do it yourself uh, kind of down and dirty uh touring and releasing and recording uh that would these were some of these would be a little more profitable than yeah. the uh the ones we heard last week is but, this also the birth of college radio here in the 80s that we're, yeah, we're kind of seeing i think so did the, college radio stations exist prior to rem or did rem lead to the creation of yeah, college radio they must have they had to have had <laughs> radio stations right right then. But, were, but was what did they play? Was to? it yeah. all like, oh, here's another Captain and Tennille song, yeah. and then all of a sudden, one generation comes along, <laughs> or a bunch of like faculty interviews all, all, yeah, all day? Yeah. I don't know. But uh, yeah, the the first band up we're gonna hear is REM, one of the bands who not only would lead the alternative charge in the '80s, but continue that into the '90s. Uh, the most the most long lived band we're gonna hear this week, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and also a lot of these bands, not REM, but all the one, a couple of the ones this week and a lot of the ones last week, uh, you can read about in the book, Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Azarad. It's a really good uh, book about independent rock from the 80s uh, specifically. You're glancing over at your shelf, so there's yeah. that book. <laughs> the book is right over there. Right there. So sure you're not only it. adding to your collection of music, you're adding to your collection of books about yes. music, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh. And looking over at your bookshelf, you have currently one book about music, and it's this one? Well, the, my book bookshelf is oh, in the, the other book room. bookshelf is somewhere this else. This is just okay, for good. the CDs, yeah. 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 It was just in here because I was reading it in here. Yeah. So, so going back, do you have a do you have a mechanism for getting rid of CDs that you acquire, listen to, and decide this is not worth being in the collection? Have we gotten to that point yet? I assume at some uh, point we have. All of the ones we've heard so far, I still keep. You still keep. I've kept, yeah. and I have. I don't plan on getting rid of any of them so far. Yeah. I kind of we you know I had a bigger list like we talked about kind of before. There was a bigger list before that I kind of whittled down to what we're right, doing now. Right. So any ones I w- might have gotten rid of, I preemptively got rid of by okay, not getting gotcha. them to begin with yeah and even and even cds i've gotten in my life in general 
most it'd have to be pretty bad for me to get rid of it <laughs> i mean you, you did you did hang out to that pink floyd album yeah from exactly 1987, that's so, clearly not yeah. the, their best work but i was yeah. like you know what it has enough merit that i'll keep it <laughs> but yeah there's uh, i i think especially i mean there's pl- uh, most of my music that i have and before this is from the 90s early 2000s because that's when I was growing up and becoming right. the age where I was buying music with, you know, any money I got. Uh, and there's certainly plenty that I could easily get rid of and probably never miss. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'll go through and look and be like, oh, I remember getting oh, that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Happy memories of listening to this in yeah, the 90s. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so far, same thing with this, with this 80s stuff. It, it has enough uh, goodwill that I think uh, I would I would re-listen to everything we've heard so far. Okay. Uh, but yeah, first up, uh, R.E.M.'s debut album, Murmur. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was released uh, in April of 1983, their first studio album, uh, after getting together in the 80, or 1980 in Athens, Georgia. These guys were all um, UGA students uh, who met there, you know, like we kind of alluded to the college uh, right. aspect of them. Michael Stipe on vocals, Peter Buck guitar, Mike Mills on bass, Bill Berry on drums. Uh, Michael Stipe, the only Georgia native of the group. The rest were all just students at UGA at the time. Uh, Typical but, UGA. <laughs> yeah. But they, uh, it's hearing this one, it was, I was impressed about how complete it sounds already mm-hmm. from the first album, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I knew REM from their big singles. Of course, they have plenty of big singles in the 80s and 90s that stuck around for forever. Right. Um, but I never, I kind of guess took it for granted, right? They were just this big kind of band that I didn't really associate with. Alternative rock I associated them with, but not necessarily the music I was into. Yeah, you know? R.E.M. is one of my, my favorite bands of all time. Murmur is not one of my favorite albums because while the sound is clearly there, like mm-hmm. R.E.M.'s kind of signature sound is really evident in this album, I still listen to this and I feel like this is a band that's in the process of becoming, right? This is yeah. 1983. They're really going to hit their stride in like the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Automatic for the People is still almost 10 years away. And they're still working towards it, right? Yeah. Like with some of these bands, and I, I think of this really specifically with REM, but with the others, kind of, I listen to them and I think more about what's going to come out of it in the 90s. And I listen to these and I think it's almost like listening or it's almost like watching the early films of a great auteur, right? Uh-huh. Like, oh man, the 39 Steps is great, but I could be watching Vertigo right yeah. now. Or Duel is awesome, but why is Jurassic Park not on the screen? <laughs> Uh, and I kind of get that with Murmur. Like, yes, this is good. Man, I really want to be listening to Automatic for People right now. <laughs> well, let's take a listen. Which makes me such a mainstream REM <laughs> fan. But I'm fine with that. I embrace that label. Yeah. But even that one, I mean, that's probably one of their more complete albums yeah. Uh, yeah. in their later stages. But And it's not even that late. They still released like eight more after that. Ten probably. albums yeah. after that, right? Yeah. Uh, but let's hear a track from Murmur. I'm going to play uh, Shaking Through. This is track 10 on the album.
Like that's definitely an REM chorus, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's an REM ass REM song. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, I think um the this one I don't know. This is the of the five, you know, I hate to start with the showstopper, but this is the one I listened to the most yes. on uh, over and over this week. But yeah, I was really impressed. I think every song it sounds like REM, but they all have a little bit of a different attitude to them. Uh you can tell obviously this is early in that uh you know, Michael Stipe is still not you can't really understand half the lyrics you can generously understand half maybe even less than that but well i mean it, it says so right there on the cover <laughs> yeah that was always the joke right that I mean, murmur was title of the album referring right? to his vocals <laughs> but uh yeah i found it really exciting to listen to and really catchy like even though i don't know the words all the melodies were stuck <laughs> in my head over yeah over. yeah and without necessarily saying this is my favorite rem album by mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination radio free europe which leads the album mm -hmm. is probably of all of the albums that we've listened to if i were to take them all and compile together like my favorite the greatest hits that would definitely be on it as mm -hmm one of the best individual songs that we've yeah. heard so far if not one of the best albums yeah and that one was kind of their lead-off single from this they recorded actually a version of that and sitting still another track that's on here uh on a small label called hibtone released that as a single in 81 uh, and then would re-record them for this in 83 then uh, this was the first of five albums on the irs label which while not independent was a smaller label uh at the time and they would then, after those five, sign with Warner Brothers for their big releases that everybody heard in the 90s. Where does this rank among, I don't know how big of an R.E.M. fan you are mm -hmm. in general, but where does this rank among albums? This is the only one I own currently. I've listened to a bunch since then, both before and because of this show. But I think, I mean, so far, maybe it's because I've heard it more than any other since it's for the show, but I do like it a lot. It might be my favorite right now. I'm I, surprised it's the only one you own. Yeah. I, You've got a big 90s collection. I do. But like I said, they were kind of like, I would hear them on the radio on the time, so I yeah. guess I never felt the need to dig deeper if they were just always, if I turned on the radio, they were always there. I'm definitely going to get more now, liking this one so much, uh, and dig into more of those IRS records that are less uh, overplayed necessarily. But uh, yeah, I like, I like this one a lot. Okay. Uh, and this album was, uh, it sold what IRS called a disappointing amount in its first year, 200,000 copies. But, uh, and it was then. Shame, really. Yeah, I know, right? That is an indication of just how big a band this was expected to be yeah. right from the get-go, right? Like, mm -hmm. this wasn't a band that just kind of came out of nowhere. This band was signed, recorded the album, and everyone just sort of thought, listening to it, yeah. and knowing what these guys were, that this was going to be someone mm -hmm. who was going to make it big someday. And by all accounts, their early live shows were really great. Yes. Like, they were a band that just clicked They're from the get-go. a great get live band. Yeah. yeah. Were a great live band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, in fact, when this one came out in 83, Rolling Stone named it its number one album of the year, uh, beating out Thriller. Thriller, you know? right. And so that was a big push. Like, I mean, that's a national magazine reviewing this band from Athens, Georgia that, you know, you heard of if you were in the know, but by that point, right from their first album, the whole country knew about them. Yeah. They would eventually go on to, like, be into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. Uh, they released 15 albums total. So they were definitely maybe one of the hugest rock bands of the last 30 years. I, I think definitely, yeah. yeah. I saw them, oh, where were we? Madison Square Garden, actually, saw oh, them wow. in concert there. They were, they were terrific. And this is a band, I mean, Michael Stipe as a front man mm -hmm. is... Not the sort of person that you think of when you think of, oh, great frontmen in right. rock history. And very much the same with each of the individual members of the band. Like, who is the greatest guitarist of mm -hmm. all time? You don't think of who is the greatest bassist. These guys came out in, what year was this? 2005 or something like this? So they're all practically in their 50s at this point. <laughs> and they filled an arena. Yeah. Not just in terms of audience, but like the music fills an arena. Mm -hmm. Michael Stipe, as the frontman that he is, captivates that entire room. And that's something that you really need to be the special kind of person in order to achieve that. Like to walk into a small club 
with 100 or 200 people and fill that room, that's something mm-hmm. that more can do. But to walk into a stadium or to walk into an arena like Madison Square Garden and explode out yeah. and just sort of dominate the room uh, is a rare achievement. And REM did that for 30, 35 years mm-hmm. almost, yeah. Yeah, it's impressive. And I mean, you early on, right, he had... He did that kind of mumbly vocal style. He had longer hair even that he would kind of just keep in front of his face. He was a more reserved guy and it would, I think it was probably around automatic when he ended up starting to shave his head and look like the Michael Stipe we know now. But but yeah, every release, they would all get more and more confident, right? And you can tell in the the music. The other notable thing I found about them was that uh, right from the beginning, they gave equal credit to all members of the band for every song, which probably helped them stick together as long as they did, right? If you understand this is the band, we're all members of the band, we're all equal contributors, It that's one huge source of tension that a lot of bands have that this one didn't. Right? This is one of the most low drama bands yeah. of all time. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's why they were together for 20 almost 30 years 30 years yeah. yeah as opposed to the smiths right which we'll yeah, which we'll get, get to, to later. later yeah uh yeah they would uh officially uh call it quits in 2011 so yeah over 30 31 years so was it that left the band was it uh bill barry the drummer barry, left that's right. uh, in 97 uh he had uh, actually had a brain aneurysm issues, yeah. at one point Oh, it was on the on tour. Monster Tour, yeah. They were in Europe, and he fortunately was in Europe with a great hospital nearby, and he was fixed up right away. He played Universal Health Care. Yeah. <clears throat> it saved Bill Barry. It can save all of us. But <laughs> it, he, he ended up, you know, recovering fine, but after a while, it was like, you know, we had a good run. There was no animosity. He was just like, you know, now's a good time to quit. And so, like, great they never put in a fourth official member they would have session musicians come and fill different touring musicians would go with them but then yeah 2011 they uh closed up shop for good that's a good thing i think after yeah. you know, 30 years you you close it up and you're not continuing to do try to do shows mm-hmm. and concerts and playing increasingly tiny venues yeah. on into your 60s and 70s yeah exactly they they called it quits at a good time, mm-hmm. and they they were still releasing music right up till then. They released an album in 2011. But uh, the next band we're going to go to is Husker Du. They released Zen Arcade, their second full length, in July of 1984. And uh, like I mentioned last week, this was uh, an SST release that that came out the same day as Double Nickels on the Dime. So SST releasing two double albums on the same day. Uh, this one. They had that's to, hardcore. Yeah, that's hardcore right there. <laughs> uh, and this, you can tell just comparing the release of this and the release of Murmur, just the the difference that a label can make. I mean, this they SST pressed only about four or five thousand copies of this in their initial run, whereas and so then it sold out almost immediately, and so then the Huskers are touring and going like nobody can find this record. And, <laughs> So they would they would only last on SST another year. They'd put out two more albums with them, but then they would also sign to Warner Brothers. Uh, and that was actually part of the reason REM picked Warner Brothers is because they had signed Husker Du before that. And so they knew that they would be a, ba- a label they could go to with a little more creative control. Cool. And who were willing to, uh, to compromise with them on that. Uh, but uh, Husker Du, Bob Mould on vocals and guitar, Grant Hart on vocals and drums, and Greg Norton on bass. Just the classic uh, power trio. Yeah, there of course that is the least. Those are the three least punk sounding yeah. names of all time. Yeah, especially Bob Mold, Bob Mold, Grant Hart, Greg Norton. They they could be. That's like a fifties uh, doo wop. Yeah, band, I was gonna right? say, or like a Cream cover band or <laughs> yeah. something like that. Yeah, especially compared to like their peers, like uh, Dead Kennedys, right? We said we had some of the best punk Jello rock names. Yeah. and Ted. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> East Bay Ray. <laughs> But uh, th- these guys would get together in Minneapolis or around that area in 1979. Um, Bob Mould's the only one not from the area originally. He was going to college uh, in that area as well. But uh, they their name came from an old board game called Husker Du, which translates to Do You Remember, which in like Danish or something. It's like, okay. It was like a kid's memory game. I was wondering game. about that. I played Husker Du when I was really? a kid, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
It's uh, like a concentration kind of game, yeah. right? Where, yeah. But uh, they they I didn't up... realize the band came from the game though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they were they were doing a cover of um uh Psycho Killer in their you know, just in their basement, but then they would sub out Keskase for other just foreign phrases so and Psycho Killer who's who's do. Yeah. And so then they then it stuck. They're like, <laughs> Well we can put umlauts on it and look cool and then yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the way to go. Uh, which they did. It's a good they, thing they didn't name their band Keskase because <laughs> be that different. actually probably would have been okay as well. I wonder. I bet there is. It's probably a there's Talking Heads be, tribute band yeah. or something called Keskase. But there should be. If there's not, America, get on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm holding the release. <laughs> Those of, of you this who until are still out there uh, waiting to form your Huskadu cover <laughs> band, we've got the name for yeah. you. Uh, but uh, they would, uh, like I said, get together in 1979. Uh, they. Uh, released a couple a live album, studio album, few EPs on their own uh, label, Reflex. Uh, they were trying to get signed with Twin Tone, the local Minneapolis label, and ended up not. So they're like, fine, we'll make our own. They released their first couple with them before getting together with SST for this one. Uh, but these are another guys who are, they fit in very much with that SST hardcore family, right? They're just dirt poor, spending all their money on music and alcohol and drugs basically sleeping all together in the same houses and vans uh and played fast and hard just like those hardcore guys yeah this is in the alternative Mm -hmm. we're doing this in alternative week but this could just as easily have been been done hardcore and this album specifically is kind of where they refined that hardcore sound into that melodic uh kind of more what we would now call alternative Mm -hmm. uh music and would then influence a lot of alternative artists. It's also a concept album of sorts, where it kind of tells a story of, you know, kid in a you know shitty Midwest life, kind of dreaming of bro- going out into the world and having a uh, maybe not rock and roll lifestyle, but a more adventurous one than he right. has in a small town. And then what's the story? He leaves, he goes out, he has the adventurous life, he realizes it's not all it's cracked up to be, there's this kind of tragic ending, and then he wakes up having yeah. dreamed the whole thing. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, it has that kind of... The 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 story kind of starts in something I learned today, broken home, broken heart. That's all kind of his shitty home life. Right. Dreams reoccurring, and instrumental comes up at the... I think that's the end of the first side of the four sides. And then from then on, right up until the recurring dreams... 14 minute uh, guitar rock jam at the end of is kind of him waking up from all that that crazy adventure. Yeah, which by the way, uh, screw you who screwed you because I was listening to this album in my car and uh-huh. invariably, like this happens to me all the time. I get to the place where I'm going, mm-hmm. I park, I go to shut the car off, and I say, okay, I'm listening to this album, I'll just sit here until this song is done, <laughs> and then I'll get out of the car. It's Husker Du, they're all like two minutes yeah. long, this won't be, this won't take very long, and then like eight minutes later, I'm still sitting there. The same <laughs> thing happened to me with Desolation Row one time, because uh-huh. I had no idea that that song was nine minutes long, and I'm sitting there like, God, shut up. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that I listened to the entirety of the last <laughs> track every time I listened to it, but a couple times, enough to get the point. Uh, but let's go ahead and hear, I'm going to play um, track 18 from, this is Newest Industry. So what side of the album are we on at this point? This is would this be side, side three. three. Yeah, because yeah. side four was just turn on the news and reoccurring dreams. Yep. It basically was probably that long to fill out the rest of the side. <laughs> Science went too far 
we're not going to listen to turn on the news, but I would add that one to to the the greatest hits. Uh, yeah. Uh, hypothetical album that I'm putting together out of all of these. That's another good one. Yeah, that, that's a really good one. Th- that's this whole album. I mean, it's it's got a lot of really great catchy songs mm-hmm. that are still bring that hardcore energy that uh, some of the songs last week. Did. So without knowing. I don't know what your research was mm-hmm. on this album before you listened to it. I just stuck the album in and listened to it. I did not even for a second pick up on the idea that this is telling a story of a yeah. boy's journey into dreamland mm-hmm. city fantasy world. And then it was like, none of that. I get online and I look it up later and it's like, oh, it's this concept album about this and that. Mm -hmm. Did you, when listening to it, pick up on the fact that there's this story arc or was that just something that... I did also read about it. Yeah. Had I not read, I probably wouldn't have picked up on it. And it's also mentioned in the book that that they're writing all these songs. They're kind of growing as songwriters and seeing all these kind of themes connecting. And then that's when they're like, well, we can make Quadrophenia, but better. Yeah, exactly. So they... That's, that was kind of them putting it all together. It's it's not like the wall where it's an obvious story that goes from one you know from point A to point B. Yeah, but, I'm it, very bad at this. Like even <laughs> listening to the wall, I wouldn't necessarily pick up on or Quadrophenia, except knowing that it's the Who when they do this in every album. I'm mm-hmm. gonna try to to listen for it. But I mean, you could just as like hearing that about this album that it's this that it's the story arc. I read that and I'm like, okay, sure, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll go along with that. You could have just as easily said that Murmur is a, a fictionalized biography of the life of Winston Churchill, <laughs> and I would have been just yeah. as willing to go along with it. Like, yeah, sure, Radio yeah. Free Europe. You I can't guess. understand what they're saying anyway, yeah, so exactly, it could be about right? anything. But, but yeah, I, I think, well, kind of one of the nice things about this is if you know it's a concept album, it's cool, and you can pick up on things listening to it. But if you don't, it works just it also as well. Works, like yeah. it still just sounds great, and kind of gets you amped up and want, wanting to just rock out for a while. Yeah, like this is a good. This was a good driving around album. I thought I, I turned it up maybe more than some of the other ones, and while I was driving around listening to it. But you turned it up and rocked out to this more than you did to the Smiths. Yeah, believe it or not. All right, yeah, yeah. this one, yeah, somehow <laughs> played better loud. I don't, I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, I guess this is an easy week for this to be the uh, hardest rocking one. Yeah, but, uh, they would uh, record this uh, with Spot, the uh, SST in-house producer in Hermosa Beach, California. Uh, cost them about three grand. They recorded for basically eighty-five hours straight, writing these songs, like driving up there, writing these songs between shows. They were writing these songs, and then even between breaks, like they'd take a break and come back in the studio with five more songs for this album. So wow. they were. They were a pretty prolific band in the short tenure that they had. They would, uh, they'd be together from, you know, like I said, seventy nine. Then they would break up around, I think it was eighty six was their last release with, um, with Warner Brothers. Uh, they, it's still a pretty good run. Yeah, it's a good run, and I think um, for the amount they were putting out, you know, they, I mean, this one came out in eighty four. They released two more albums in eighty five. And then two more records with Warner Brothers, the last of which was another double album. So they were writing constantly. If you saw them at a show, a lot of times you'd be seeing songs that would appear two, three albums later because they were just constantly writing. Nice. Um, the, but the, those limitations of SST, like I said, that you know they only printed about five thousand. They sold out instantly, and were always kind of slow getting them their royalties because the label itself was always constantly like just on the edge of folding at any of second. Course. And so then that would kind of lead him to sign with Warner Brothers and get a little bit more stability for the for those final couple albums. What was the response to those final couple albums? Uh, not as not as strong of a response as uh, these as their SST releases, but um, and part of that the band themselves kind of admit in the in the book I think it was to once they made that jump to major label they were like you know we're happy for the stability. We're happy for the, this better sound we can make. But at the same time, we don't want it to feel like we're selling out. So we don't want to push the envelope that much. And so they felt they kind of hamstrung themselves by signing with them because then if they go crazy, all their fans, it'll alienate their current fans. And then, so it was kind of a catch 22 uh, for them. Yeah. Signing with a major label, if you're a punk band is something that only you got to be a particular kind of Mm -hmm. punk band in order to make that work. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the songs I heard from those Warner Brothers releases, they're not bad, but mm-hmm. uh, 
there is something like a there's a little bit of an energy missing i feel like yeah that you find on on this older stuff but still a, a legendary band that would go on to inspire tons of people uh, and after the band broke up uh, bob mold would go on to do some, they would all make some solo stuff bob mold would also uh form the band sugar in the 90s um and then uh but eventually uh or actually just recently in 2017 grant hart unfortunately passed away of uh i think it was pancreatic cancer mm-hmm. but uh they were all still pretty active uh all th- after even after who's could do it yeah and then we'll go uh, just down the street to another uh, Minneapolis Speaking band. of Minneapolis, a hotbed of uh, yeah. musical activity in it the was. mid-80s. This right? is, there's kind of the holy trinity of 1984 releases between Zen Arcade, Let It Be by The Replacements, the next one we're going to hear, yeah. and Purple Rain. The, Minneapolis in 1984 was somehow the best <laughs> state in the country. They're also the only ones not to vote for Reagan in the election. Oh, that's true, so, yeah. Yeah. If you were in Minneapolis in 84, you were great music came in out the best of, place yeah. on the planet, basically. Yeah. Or Minnesota, I should say. Yeah, so then in October of 1984, The Replacements Let It Be. This is their third album. The, uh, the Replacements did sign to Twin Tone, the local uh, Minneapolis label. Twin Tones chose The Replacements over Husker Du. Basically, Husker that's du, how Husker Du yeah. sees it anyway. Yeah. But uh, they, yeah, The Replacements, they're much much younger, probably at least five to ten years younger. In fact, uh, Tommy Stinson, the bass player, uh, would his brother Bob Stinson, the guitarist of the band, got him the bass and gave it to him at age 11, kind of to keep him out of trouble. Bob was like, look, I know that I'm kind of a teenage fuck-up. I want to make sure <laughs> that you don't do as bad as I did. And so... So here, I'm going to get you into rock. So I'm going to get you into rock, you yeah. know, just to keep it wholesome. Uh, he was Tommy was 15 when they recorded their first record and was 18 for this one for Let It Be. Uh, Paul Westerberg on vocals and guitar and Chris Mars on drums were the ones who filled out the band. Yeah, they basically, they got together in uh, 78, 79, around that time, officially became the replacements in 1980 and recorded a cassette on their own and basically just harassed Twin Tone saying, here's our music, what do you want to, don't you want to sign us now? So eventually they're like, all right, fine. And they said yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, Hooskers kind of got uh, got under their skin a little bit because they're like, we've been playing all over town. <laughs> yeah. We've made all this music and then these little young punks come and just turn in a cassette. But these two time. bands, they kind of hung out together. Yeah, they were friendly they? rivals. Yeah, like, but uh, And the Hooskers still helped Did they them. hang out with Prince too? Were they all kind of together? <laughs> oh, or? God, I hope no. so. <laughs> that would be a party. But... Uh, the uh, yeah the Hooskers kind of helped him out and they would get him shows and they would uh, you know help him show him the ropes a little bit since they were older but uh yeah twin tone would go with the replacements for uh three albums and then replacements would eventually sign to sire which is a warner brothers subsidiary so they would their jump was also to warner brothers uh warner brothers i guess was taking a lot of risks on the alternative scene in the 80s they were kind of the place to go if you were ready to graduate yes yeah uh but they uh like I said, they were all pretty young, but Tommy especially 18 when this album came out. And they were like, they kind of, rather than the hardcore speed like record that Husker Du and the SST bands were doing, they were kind of a more almost classic rock kind of sound. They were, they styled themselves as like a bar band. Like they're the ones you'd see at the roadhouse with the fence in front that you, so you can't throw your beer bottles at them. But, and, but those guys, they'd probably tear down the fence and throw the bottles at the crowd members uh, <laughs> themselves they were kind of the drunken hooligans uh around town who always had a crazy show and in fact opened for rem after murmur came out and their goal at each show basically was to try and piss off the audience as much as possible and succeeded on most nights from 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 what i hear but also, this is the band that gets banned from Saturday Night Live for showing up and yeah. getting completely trashed for an hour, and then going mm-hmm. on and trying to perform and failing. Yeah, and part part of that attitude was like their their name, the Replacements, came from like, well, you came to see one band, but we're the Replacements. We're the ones who are filling in for who you actually want to see. Yeah. And so they always had kind of a uh, self deprecating vibe about them, and part of that drinking and partying was to like look we're we're never gonna be rock stars so why put on a rock star show we're just gonna get drunk and have fun and 
turns out they actually were able to release some really good music during that anyway. But very much the anti-REM in terms of yeah. REM would get on stage like very professional, mm-hmm. knock it out with this huge, amazing show and like get this reputation as being a great live band. Replacements right. has this reputation as being a terrible live band yeah. that makes great music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. REM's live audiences were like, oh my God, that was incredible. They sound great. Replacements was like, I guess I should see him again just to <laughs> see if that's what they always are like. But the, they definitely still had a following from that, and the, but obviously it restricted them probably from going any bigger than they got. Uh, so let's take a listen to one of the songs. I'm going to play probably my favorite off of this one. This is track seven, Unsatisfied. It's always fascinating to me that these bands that have such a reputation for being hard living, wild partying, mm-hmm. self destructive, get on stage drunk and make a mess of the place can then come together in the studio and produce such finely crafted yeah. stuff, right? This like this song still just gives me goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Like it's just such like a the emotion in his voice and the the strings and the guitar, like it's something about like they really managed to capture for all of their self-deprecation they capture this you know suburban lifestyle that's like you can i don't know you, it i find it very relatable but yeah. uh, and really uh, this song especially i mean the whole album is great but something about that was like it just was really exciting yeah and yeah, they met they these drunken hooligans. Do I need to ask questions about you now? Because we're <laughs> sitting here in this uh, in this like spare room upstairs in a yeah. house in the suburbs, recording this. Like, are you okay? <laughs> this has all been a call for help, Eric. <laughs> I've been. It shouldn't have taken this long for you to realize, but but no, that it is like the, the, You're right that these guys, you know, these who, who just kind of get drunk and go have party shows, like are still somehow managing to put together very eloquently like this the feelings that they're having, right? There's this uh, Godard movie, Sympathy for the Devil, which is... Uh, it's it, it bounces back and forth between uh, clips. It's a documentary-ish movie, but it bounces back and forth between clips of these kind of crazy hippie commune kind of people just talking to the camera about mm-hmm. their lives and what they're trying to do. And then it goes from that to uh 
documentary footage of the Rolling Stones in the studio very slowly working together to craft the song that eventually becomes Sympathy for the Devil. And it walks through the process of, oh, I've got this song. Let's try to work it out. What mm-hmm. should the drums sound like? What should the what should the, the guitar riff sound like? Until they finally put together this finished product. And it's this fascinating depiction of just the extent to which these guys and the rolling stones like of all of the bands that have the reputation for Mm -hmm. hard living and wild partying the rolling stones number one right and then they come together in the studio and it's like all right guys let's sit down and do this and they're just working together Mm -hmm. very carefully and meticulously to to put together this thing and it's interspersed with oh man we're gonna make the world float on the bed of flowers. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, those people have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> Rolling Stones have that reputation and then they actually come in and get it done. Yeah, it, that is impressive. I got the same feeling um, in Gimme Shelter when mm-hmm. uh, in that movie too, when they're recording like wild horses and stuff. Yes. But you see them, it's, it's, it's crazy to see the process, right, of these rock stars yep. that are then still able to craft something, you know? Yeah. And it, Gimme Shelter is critical of the Rolling Stones, yeah. around. like very, oh, totally. very critical. But it still shows them, yeah. like as legitimate musicians mm-hmm. that are coming in and making this. Yeah, happen. their instincts for putting on a free show are not as good as their. Yeah, maybe maybe not <laughs> so much that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the, I think um, this the, this is another. I mean, we're as far as I'm concerned, three for three. Like all of these are bands that I will be filling out the rest of their catalog with. Yeah. I think. I still think all of these albums are very transitional. Uh, I listen to all of these and I'm like, uh, and especially with like Husker Du, you see where it's coming from with yeah. the early REM and, and even with the replacements, you see where it's going. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think all of these albums are still kind of nebulous in terms of what they currently are, yeah. right? Uh, and maybe this is just my perspective of I know where this is going. Like, I know where this trend is going to take us by the time we get to like 91, 92, 93, 94, which mm-hmm. is where I come into the picture in terms of starting to listen to music. So those are the albums that I embrace. Right. So these these bands and these albums that are in the process of getting there, I don't like as much. But yeah. That's probably just me. I think, uh, yeah, it all comes down to personal preference, yeah. I think. Part of, I think there's something exciting to me about that transition. I mean, maybe it's part of like why I liked uh, Unknown Pleasures better than uh, the other Joy Division album, right? Because mm-hmm. it was a little rougher. There, you could see the, the edges of it. You can kind of see where it's going but also there's something fun about it not being finished yet, right you know right. like there's something that's kind of cool about and that's why I kind of I, I trend earlier on the records that i get for this because i want to see them growth like i want to see the growth rather than the end result right and maybe that's part of why like rem didn't click with me in the 90s because they were already a fully formed that might be you know yeah. they're a fully formed band making these Ready for radio? Oh hits. God! Don't listen to Monster. <laughs> I've listened to some. Honestly, <laughs> like, and, th- and that one, Monster, the ones, the songs I've heard, like, uh, you know, the sing, the singles, like, uh, what's the frequency, Kenneth? And yeah, uh, Star sixty nine, like, Star sixty nine. Yeah. yeah, they're good, but they're polished. Right, yeah. and that, but Monster Two is kind of that one is almost a reaction to the times uh, that it's in too. It's late nineties, like Kurt Cobain had just died. Like, there's. There's still a, an air of experimentation to that one that even like you might not catch from, uh, I don't know, something that came after that. Uh, 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 oh, I can picture the album in my head and it's everything but the everything but the title. Like, uh, what is it? You know, that yeah. one with yeah. Day Sleeper on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that <laughs> everything after they kind of then definitely settled into that polished rock band, mm. but... They're still kind of playing around with Monster, I feel like, from what I've heard. Uh, but let's now jump across the pond to The Smiths' uh, self-titled debut. This was in 1984 as well, February of 1984. So The Smiths of all of these is the one that I think is the most put together and finished in terms of what this band... This band knows mm-hmm. what it wants to be, and then it goes out and does it. All of the other bands, I think, are either in the process of becoming or transitioning away from uh, or creating something that isn't quite there yet. But the Smiths knows what it is. It knows what its sound is. Yeah. In a way that the other bands, I don't I don't think, quite do. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you've got Morrissey on vocals, Johnny Marr on guitar, Andy Rourke on bass, Mike Joyce on drums. Uh, yeah, got together in Manchester and kind of right off the bat knew what they wanted to make, like you said. So I think uh, just like the alternative 
bands we've heard so far, you know, it's still, uh, they're making stuff against what's popular, right? There's not real, it's not synthesizers. There's not big booming guitar solos. It's kind of jangly pop birds inspired, uh, pop, pop rock, I guess right. you'd call it. But, um, yeah, I think, and this is, you know, I got their debut cause, uh, they released four altogether, and I, and like I said, I trend earlier, so I wanted to get the first one. And yeah, I think you, it sounds obviously like the Smiths, right? There's nothing, no vocalist. It sounds like Morrissey mm-hmm. and Peter Marr is a very, uh, or not Peter, Johnny Marr, Peter Buck. Uh, they both, you know, all these guitars have identifiable sounds, right? Uh, but uh, this this album was released February 1984. Like I said, they signed just the year before with Rough Trade, which is kind of an uh, independent label in, in London. Uh, and their records were released in the U.S. through Sire, the what WB imprint that uh, Replacement signed with. So it's funny that a Again lot of these... with the WB. Yeah, they all have that common theme. Uh, this Charming Man included on this CD release was only on the U.S. Uh, release. It was a single in the U.K., but they threw it on the album for this one. What is with singles being released off album? This was such a common thing up until very recently, and there's no good reason for it. It'd be funny to see. I want to see what the sales numbers in the UK are for singles versus the US, because it seems like all the bands we've talked about. Well, they were releasing singles as actual singles. Like in the age of vinyl, you would go and purchase a single. So I guess maybe doing that, you get double sales and people go and buy the album they listen to it and they're Mm -hmm. like oh shit i gotta go back and buy the single now right but i wonder like rem released their their hip tone single but then also re-recorded those for the record so i wonder if single sales in the uk were stronger than the u.s maybe Maybe more people bought them than in the u.s maybe albums were more accepted in the u.s it's an interesting question yeah it's hard to know without being alive at that time but you could probably not, go and look this. It could, yeah, I guess I can look at the numbers. numbers exist. Those we numbers have the internet exist. now, but I guess the Beatles were the right. kind of the the paragons of this, right? Because mm-hmm. Hey Jude never appeared on an album. Lady Madonna. There's like a whole bunch of yeah. uh, Day Day Tripper never appeared on an album. There's a whole uh, like when they did the big Beatles remaster and re-released everything. One of the ones they did was the Past Masters single collection. Yes, because there's so many songs that were just available. Well, like the Red Album and the Blue Album, and the red were like blue, greatest yeah. hits collections, mm-hmm. which had all of these singles that yeah. you. Go and buy Sgt. Pepper and listen to that hit single. Oh, right. wait. No, there is none. Never <laughs> yeah. mind. Yeah. So different. Uh, different time. Different time. Yeah. yeah. But I guess it's true. When I was when I was growing up in the in the 80s and I would go to the record store and I would want to buy something, mm-hmm. it was usually a single rather than a full album. And I also inherited my mom when she was growing up in the... Uh, 60s mostly all of her records were singles and Mm -hmm. i inherited those so very very few albums but a lot of singles yeah and for some bands certainly that was a more affordable route also true because you didn't have to record a full album so it'd be cheaper to just put out a single and then try and you know snowball the audience and then you can go and record an album yeah Uh, but let's take a listen to uh what difference does it make this was uh released as a single but then also included on the album That's a great song. (laughs) 
Yeah, and and it's a uh, it's a good example of that uh, Smith sound that they find, yeah. like kind of so jangly and fun and depressing mm-hmm. all at the same yeah. time. Yeah, combining that uh, bright jangly guitar with these dark poetic lyrics. Yeah, and they kind of uh, they kind of launch right in, like you said, to the sound. They kind of find it early on, and then they kind of will iterate on it. Uh, from what I've heard after this, but they uh, they also don't stick together long enough to really find you know want to evolve necessarily Fair. i think when you've got a vocalist like morrissey who only sings in minor keys mm-hmm. and i'm not sure is capable of singling singing yeah. in anything but and that's totally fine uh you've got your sound right yeah. when you've got morrissey as your vocalist like okay we know what we're gonna be mm-hmm. and, and it's just the question of are we gonna go full-on melancholy depressing or are we gonna be ironic and and contrast the vocals with something jangly and poppy right yeah, there's a there's a dial that kind of goes from zero to ten, but is never below five. <laughs> yeah, it's zero ten and nothing in between. <laughs> but uh, they, the way the one thing you know, I mentioned like REM giving song credit to everybody right from the get go, sharing the royalties evenly. The Smiths, one of the big problems that they ran into was uh, John Marr and Morrissey <laughs> each took forty percent of their royalties for both performances and uh, releases. Uh, and then Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce got 10% each, which there's, you know, kind of conflicting uh, testimony as to when they knew that and how agreeable they were to it. But they would, after the band broke up, would take them to court in 89 to try and get some of that money back. Because these were this obviously one of the biggest bands in the UK at the time and, and in the world. And they were only getting 10% of the royalties from that. Successfully, did they win that lawsuit? Uh, Rourke, who was in kind of financial trouble at the time ended up just settling immediately for 83,000 pounds and keeping the 10%. But then Joyce would keep fighting until eventually in 96, seven years after the initial lawsuit, they finally settled for, to give him a million dollars in back royalties and future 25% after that. So good for him. Yeah. Good for him. It's too bad that Roy kind of got boned right away out of it, but I guess it is what it is. I guess it is. Yeah. I did buy this one used, so I didn't get any from that. <laughs> and I'll probably continue if I buy any more of them to send get Rourke used, a dollar. Yeah, exactly. If he can send me a you know self-addressed uh, stamped envelope, I'll I don't send know him if he can back. afford to. <laughs> Maybe I not. Mean, that's that's postage across the across the pond. You know. Maybe I can Venmo him. Maybe. I think he's doing fine. He's probably he's fine. probably okay. Not as well off, obviously, as Morrissey yeah. he would continue to perform as, as a solo artist after this. But uh, yeah, they released four albums on Rough Trade and Sire in the U.S. Uh, 87 is when they called it quit, so pretty short-lived, uh, th- you know, three years after this album comes out. They released four total, so they're still pretty uh, prolific for their time, but yeah, short-lived. But obviously very influential. They're, they're kind of the UK's REM, right? If there's if you're going to pick two of the most influential alternative acts, maybe, maybe the Smiths and REM. Yeah, probably. Yeah. From like the from like the eighties, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know who else would be because the Smiths and REM are so different in right. terms of in terms of like what they're, I, I, or are they? I don't know. I've never compared the Smiths to REM before mm-hmm. in my head, but yeah, jangly pop, alternative, influential, melancholy lyrics. Yeah, uh, yeah okay, I'll go yeah. along with that. Yeah. yeah. So I think. Uh, you know, they were certainly influential. A lot of people, uh, the first time I really, I heard of them uh, before and I'd heard probably, um, they have another single that I don't think is on an album that was pretty big. The, um, how soon is now? Mm-hmm. Right? But, but, uh, and then there's a cover of this charming man on a death cap for cutie album. That was probably the first time I really heard a song that, uh, made me want to consider looking for them. But, uh, yeah, never got around to it until now. Yeah, the radio station I work for has How Soon Is Now in our library and nothing else. So mm-hmm. as far as my workplace is concerned, the Smiths are a one-hit wonder. <laughs> yeah, and and that is a, like a heavier rock song, right? Yeah, so that kind yeah. of fits in with the more... Uh, uh, but very distinctively Smiths. Certainly, right? that yeah. Same, that same vocal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Except for the fact that Morrissey is a greedy bastard who kept all of the money for himself and Michael Stipe was the generous guy yeah. who 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 shared equally in a socialistic manner with the band, which is exactly the opposite of what you would expect from the Brit <laughs> and the true. American. Yeah, if you had, if you didn't know either band, you might assume <laughs> the opposite. But but yeah, the, uh, now we're gonna go back to America for the final album of Good. the week. Uh, 
<laughs> we're back home. Finally. Away from these greedy British people yeah. who just kept everything for themselves. <laughs> Universal health care. <laughs> yeah, last album of the week. We've got uh, Jane's Addiction's Nothing Shocking from 1988. This is early Jane's Addiction, too, right? This is their first studio yeah. album. Uh, they had released one before that was kind of a live album with some overdubs um, that was released on Triple uh, X, so just a l- small local LA label. And then this one uh, got the or that got them enough attention to uh, be signed to guess guess which Ooh, Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. <laughs> hey. They, yeah, they went five for five this week and uh, got all these bands. Signed. Screw you, Capital. It's funny. It's funny though. By '88, um, you know, this is their this is James Addiction's first album, right? So you, it took them five REM albums to get there. Where so by '88, everybody's kind of tuning into like, oh, okay, this is what this is what it's going to. This be. is kind of what it's. I have finally remembered the name of the REM album that we were trying to think of oh, 15 okay. minutes ago, but I'm not going to say it. I'll let you do it in the, in the corrections <laughs> at the end. Okay, that's it. Yeah, that's for the everybody at home to uh, to hear. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, Jane's Addiction, nothing shocking. August of '88, studio debut. Like I said, Perry Farrell on vocals, Dave Navarro guitar, Eric Avery on bass, Stephen Perkins on the drums. Um, this one, the band got together in 85 after uh, a couple other, you know, smaller uh, local bands they'd performed in before and was named after uh, Farrell's roommate, who was also the titular character of Jane Says. Okay. With their big song. Uh, what was she addicted to? Heroin. <laughs> they were going to, in fact, one of the names of the band earlier was like Jane's heroin problem or something like, but they were like, well, we probably shouldn't put it right up front. I don't know that Maybe. people are going to run out and buy an album where the band is, has heroin in their name, but um, they they also had another royalty issue, which caused them. They only released one album after this before they broke up, uh, and then they reunited later. And I don't know if they restructured their contract at all. But Farrell Ray out of the would gate would have had to in order. To I would, I would think yeah. so. Farrell Ray out of the gate was like, I want fifty percent for writing all the lyrics, and we'll split the rest. All four of us wrote the music after that, so we'll each get twelve and a half after that. So he got 62.5% of the royalties. Everyone else got stuck with 125 So pretty rough deal. And it almost broke him up right there. Yeah. They, man- they for some reason, stuck through it and, and put out Americans. a couple albums. But, I know. That's so greedy. Yeah. Right. But uh, this album, um, like I said, Jane Says, big song off of it, Mountain Song, another single. This one, uh, it's interesting to see where kind of the alternative college radio scene is in 88, mm-hmm. right? It's get, This is a little heavier. It's very L.A. sounding. It's uh, Let's take a listen. This is, I'll play Ocean Size. This is the second song on the album. much more recognizably 90s alternative there yeah. by the time we get to that mm-hmm. you definitely see this is like where the next five or six years will be right but uh, I, I think it still sounds pretty good it's not it's probably my least favorite of the five i think uh it's this song you know i like that song in that it, you kind of get in the beginning that acoustic strum that then leads into this explosion right. of, of hard rock which is kind of the way the, i think the album still has a decent flow to it it kind of goes from like acoustic to heavy uh, you know almost heavy metal sounding uh, guitar 
Um, but I, maybe I got put off too that the fact that I know that Farrell's getting two thirds of the <laughs> money from this, but especially the, it's so funny. I was listening Dave to Dave Navarro's fine. I know he deserves way more, yeah. but, uh, it's funny. The first song on here has no lyrics. So you have to imagine the band's going, Perry, there's no fucking lyrics in this first song and you're getting 62% of the, of the royalties from this. It's about what's not being exactly. said. That's what I didn't sing <laughs> that, that matters. But, uh, they they would uh, their farewell tour in '91 was uh, the first Lollapalooza tour, which Farrell would create. He, he would go on to create Lollapalooza. They would tour that festival from '91 to '97, before it became just a. They revived it as a one-off uh, Chicago-only festival in '05. Uh, I think through today. I think they're yeah, still, still going. Um, so you know, I guess at least he took that money and made a pretty cool tour for everybody to go to. But it's funny there. I did get to see them after they rejoined. They played a uh, festival in Atlanta that I went to. Um, and it's, you know, knowing like Lollapalooza and like the freak shows that they had and stuff during that. It's so like, that's what Jane's Addiction's live shows were. They had like people hanging from hooks and stuff. Like even on this festival that they weren't the, the headliner for, they still brought nice. out like all these guys. It's, they they were pretty great live, I have to say. And yeah, they, they reformed, uh, I guess it was like early 2000s uh, to... It was a big deal, I remember. When, yeah. Because I came into music after Jane's Addiction broke up, so I never really <laughs> fully got into them. But when they came back together, I remember like that was news when that happened. Yeah, and I think they did end up signing to Capitol for those two. They put out two or three more records. About so, time, Capitol. Yeah, they finally got in on the... <laughs> probably 10 years too late. But, yeah, right. Uh then uh, I, I still, you know, I got this kind of on the strength of Jane Says. I think that's still a really great song. It's super sad sounding, but super, it kind of in that Smith's vein of like depressing poetic lyrics, but a really catchy guitar mm -hmm. riff. And uh, Okay, what happened to Jane? Now I want to know. I, 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 you know, I'll be honest. I didn't, I don't know if she has her own Wikipedia entry that I can follow up on. I hope she's, uh, I hopefully hope she's, she's okay. Yeah. Hopefully she was able to kick tomorrow, but yeah. I, I, it's a, uh, I realized, though, listening to it, that I think the single that got played more on the radio, at least on the stations I was listening to, was the version from their previous one, that kind of live live with overdubs album, because it has, you can hear a crowd in oh, the Jane background. Says. Yeah, yes, Jane Says. Yeah. So it's hearing this one, I was like, oh, this is the too. song, but it's not quite the same one I remember, yep. which is kind of interesting. I, I'm glad I said I got this one, because it kind of does set that stage for the for the hard 90s. It's not quite grunge, but it's that harder sound that a lot of people would, would develop. Um and I think they were an impressive live band, but Murmur is still the one I go back to the most of this okay. of this lineup. So of the these are the five that you chose, mm -hmm. and I know you always have trouble narrowing it down yeah. to five. What was number six? Uh, you know, do you remember? And then maybe it's my biggest regret so far, but uh, I I cut Dinosaur Junior because I was already more familiar with them. Okay. I had like burned copies of You're Living All Over Me and Bug that I'd gotten that. I would have probably bumped them for Jane's Addiction because I think those are so good. And this one is good, but it's not like a classic that I would go back to okay. probably. So Did Dinosaur Jr. also sign with Warner Brothers? Cause I'll, have to, I'll have to check. We'll they, have to look that up. Because <laughs> if they did, then yes, you made a mistake. Yeah. If they're a capital band, then no, this is Warner <laughs> no, Brothers week. I think they, I know they at least started independent. They might have They might have started on SST. I don't yeah. know. But, uh, Everyone starts independent. Everyone starts independent. But because uh, they were mentioned in the book too, in, in our band could be your life. They have a chapter. Uh, but yeah, for, yeah I, I wanted to focus more on stuff I wasn't as familiar with. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, I, I would have been happier probably going going with them. Eh, that's fair. Yeah. But, it, you know, I like. There are more weeks to come. Yeah. There are more to come. And These I've, bands are classifiable in 18 different genres. Yeah. I'm sure Dinosaur Jr. is. The and, same. you know, every week I do try and get some different sounding ones that show the whole spectrum of whatever we're talking about. And I think. Jane's Addiction still falls within that. And even though it doesn't, it's not quite as, uh, it's probably the least timeless of these ones too. I think this is the most identifiable time period to me. It sounds most, much more of that late 80s, yes. early 90s rock yeah. sound. Except insofar as when you listen to the Smiths, it's identifiable as the Smiths and you can pinpoint the time period. Right. But it's not, it's not what you immediately mm -hmm. think of when you think of the 80s. Yeah, you know right? it's the Smiths and you know they were only around in the 80s, but you don't necessarily think of that as that 80s yeah. sound necessarily. And then the other three bands are, again, still in the process of becoming. So mm -hmm. you've got that kind of transitional, where do we classify this kind yeah. of, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, those other four, you somebody could have released them within the last few years and it wouldn't sound out of place. Whereas mm -hmm. I think Jane's Addiction... If you released it now, 
it would sound like a 90s it throwback. would sound retro yeah, yeah. but uh yeah I'll, uh, next week uh you know speaking of retro kind of we're going to be going to some of the artists who were big in the 60s and 70s and then released albums in the 80s <laughs> so these uh, artists were huge and then they kept doing they were so. huge and yeah. then they stuck around so yeah. we'll be talking about uh rolling stones john lennon paul mccartney david bowie and lou reed will all get uh looked at next week and one of them is double fantasy which i'm excited about because i have never listened to double fantasy so this is going to be fun nice yeah yeah i'm excited for this one it's funny each week you know i kind of the first like few time few days after this i kind of miss the ones before like when i start it's it's funny to jump into a new set and be mm-hmm. like oh i kind of miss the other guys not that i'll never listen to them again but for the purpose of the show i kind of fo- focus on whatever the next week is yeah and so it'll be well this, it does kind of matter because last week was hardcore punk and then i stuck in these cds and i started listening to them and i was like i don't know i'm like i'm, I'm right i've been getting into hardcore punk like this just feels weak to me yeah i know and, and this is probably like you know, going from hardcore to this, maybe who's going to do the good transition from, the, yeah. from one to the other, but they all kind of, this is going to be maybe the biggest jump uh, going from these to whatever the these big artists are doing at the time. Right. And, may, and you know, we'll see, but we'll see uh, to varying degrees of success, probably, whichever, however they do. But uh, yeah, for this week, we heard uh, we heard R.E.M., we heard The Replacements, Who's Going Do, The Smiths, Jane's Addiction. You know, if I had to guess, I would say that we heard the 80s. We did hear the 80s. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. See ya. Thanks for listening to Andy Here's the 80s. Shout out to Dinosaur Jr. for being so awesome. I do definitely recommend you go pick up the two albums I mentioned and rock out. If you do want to pick up any Smiths records, I encourage you to buy the Muse, not just for their royalty debacle, but because Morrissey has said some pretty hateful shit in the last several years and doesn't need any more monetary encouragement. The R.E.M. album Aaron was referring to was 1998's Up, with its lead single Day Sleeper, and Husker Du's final album would release in 1987, not 86. Let me know what some of your favorite alternative albums from the 1980s are by sending me an email at andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com. That's 80s spelled out, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter at andyhearsit. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.